Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Thursday, February 16th, 2017 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Donald Trump does not have narcissistic personality disorder. According to a letter to the editor in the New York Times the other day, it was written by the chairman of the task force that defined narcissistic personality disorder. Oh, that guy thinks it's all about him. Anyway, you're probably asking, what? How can the marmalade menace not be a narcissist? The good doctor did not say he wasn't a narcissist. He said you can't diagnose him with the disorder because even though Donald Trump may be a world-class narcissist to have narcissistic personality disorder, you have to suffer from distress and impairment because of your narcissism. And if you watch Donald Trump at today's press conference, he was gleeful. Well, not during the time before he took questions, when he was describing the situation he inherited as some sort of dystopian hellhole sandwiched between two nefarious trade partners. But he really got into it, when he really got into it, with reporters. At one point, he even engaged in uranium splaining. You know what uranium is, right? It's a thing called nuclear weapons and other things, like lots of things are done with uranium, including some bad things. This is the worst and tungsten, no one talks about tungsten. Lots of things, x-rays, light bulbs, has a symbol, W, even though it's tungsten, no W, no one talks about that. Trump's major device was to flat out deny reality. His approval ratings are great. His election, historic landslide. Michael Flynn did the right thing in calling Russia. His views are binary. He is strong and wise. His enemies and doubters are weak and foolish. He is true. They are fake. He is quality. They are inferior. Listen to his critique of Obama administration Russia policy. Hillary Clinton gave him 20% of our uranium. Hillary Clinton did a reset. Remember with the stupid plastic button that made us all look like a bunch of jerks? Here, take a look. He looked at her like, what the hell is she doing? Which simply runs counter to the Trump aesthetic. Melania is going to be outstanding. That's right. She just opened up the visitor center. In other words, touring of the White House. She was always the highest quality that you'll ever find. And while Trump could not give a flat out no to, did anyone in your campaign contact the Russians during the election? He did point the finger at the real culprits, busting voters from Massachusetts. No, wait, wait. Leakers. 
leaking in from Massachusetts, the porous Massachusetts border, sneaking the bust of MLK across the border. All right, I might be getting confused, a little lightheaded. I'm going to have to get it back all together for the spiel in which we're going to really analyze the press conference. And in particular, we're going to trace the history of one fact that Trump was caught lying about in real time at the press conference. But first, he came to prominence as a voice of earnestness. And don't we need earnest opposition right now? He's Jedediah Purdy, and he's here to talk tactics. The Defender is a beautiful car, but beauty is, of course, sometimes only skin deep. Not with the Defender. Let's talk about the interior. It's robust, built with integrity. Yes, it's designed iconically, the exterior, that's what compelled me. My, my neighbor Jay says, Mike, you see what's on the block? It's a Defender. And I look down the block and indeed there is. And me and Jay the neighbor and Michelle, we gather around the Defender. We peer in the window. I have to say, I don't want to make this a too tawdry, but we lust or perhaps we gvel. To drive the Defender is to explore with greater confidence we looked at the cargo capacity, more room for the gear. There's really a wide range of adventures. The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. Push what's possible with a vehicle made to go further. The Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com slash Defender. Jedediah Purdy is a professor of law at Duke. Uh, he's also a skilled author, contributing to Dissent Magazine, The New Yorker, and uh, recently, The New Republic, where he wrote, America's new opposition from Occupy Wall Street to Black Lives Matter, the left has been reborn, can find a way to harness the populist uprising that brought Trump to power. Hello, Jed Purdy. How are you? Hi, Mike. Good, thanks. How about you? I'm well. Now, populist is a word that maybe doesn't mean what we think it means, or maybe it means what you think it means. I wonder sometimes if the populism of Bernie Sanders is really that similar to the populism of Donald Trump, in that I know populism generally means anti-elite, but where you take it from there is so divergent. Can we say that this is clearly a populist moment that we know left-wing populists have a claim to? The sense... Uh where I think it makes some sense to say that the Bernie Sanders movement and the Trump campaign overlap in being something we could call populist is that they both clearly tapped into a widespread sense that neither the political system nor the economic system was responsive to the ambitions and interests of a lot of ordinary people. And there was an impulse to rattle the cage, to shake the building. There profoundly different movements <clears throat> in terms of what they do with that starting point. The key difference, I would say, is that the Trump campaign appeals to an idea of who the people are, the real Americans who need to have their uh, who need to be put back at the center of the country and who the uh, economy and government need to answer to. It is more or less explicitly, depending on the day and the tweet or the executive order, an explicitly religiously defined ethno-national, implicitly white identity politics kind of America. So that's one 
thing we can mean by populism. In that sense, the Trump campaign is doing something I think is totally apart from what the Sanders campaign was doing, which was trying to address serious experiences of economic insecurity and displacement and alienation from the political process in a way that was scrupulously anti-racist, non-nativist, and serious about trying to engage the institutions that actually produce those problems. But to some extent, the problems, I think, help to account for the uh, initial appeal of both the movements. Now, populist movements, Occupy Wall Street can be described as populist. The Tea Party was described as populist. In this moment, with these massive outpourings, every Saturday, in fact, since he's been in office, um, Mm -hmm. of anti-Trump sentiment, I've seen a likening to the Tea Party, in that the Tea Party did get things done. I've seen good scholarship saying that there for every member for every Tea Party activist who went out to uh, protest, it generated something like 1.4 votes, and there was a multiplier effect with donations. But I've seen none of that, not for lack of trying, with Occupy Wall Street. You focus on Occupy Wall Street. What is the evidence that Occupy Wall Street can be a tangible, practical thing that the American left can capitalize on? So that's a really, really helpful challenge. Um, But I think that what Occupy did in 2011 was open a kind of space in political argument where it became possible for people to talk in a serious way about economic inequality and economic power and not be dismissed out of hand as um, engaged in what was always called class warfare. And if you were doing that, then that was no good and, and you weren't a person to take seriously. So Occupy kind of opened a door for that conversation. There was the the massive attention to Thomas Piketty's um, work on the long history of economic inequality. And then there was, in some ways, out of nowhere, I think even to Bernie Sanders' own surprise and the surprise of his initial supporters, the tremendous responsiveness to a campaign that really put economic inequality front and center. One thing that's going on in this moment, I mean, here at Slate, we have something called the Slate Academies, and we're talking about the history of fascism or the history of autocrats. People are debating, you know, is Trump an autocrat? Is he a wannabe autocrat, a burgeoning autocrat? And I say that's, if you want to talk about that because it's a peg to talk about an interesting issue, fine. But that's not the most important thing to talk about. Yet I was going through your, it reminds me of after after 9-11, 2001, there was all this talk is America an empire. And I saw that you weighed in on this, on that talk. Now, I know you're a thinker, you're a public intellectual, so I would never begrudge you for weighing in on any, you know, category designation. But do you think it's especially useful to talk about things like, are we in now this separate category, which is somewhat subjective? Or is it more useful to say, let's get out there and get the courts to overturn (laughs) this ban? I think that today I would say, and this sounds like what you're saying, that if we want to talk about classifying Trump as authoritarian or non-authoritarian, once again, like populist, that term is one that we use to organize phenomena because they matter to us for some reason other than like whether they fit the definition. So we don't want to get too hung up on the definition. I think when people talk about the um, incipient authoritarian potential of the Trump phenomenon, they are responding to ways that his candidacy and his style of politics 
break with some familiar political norms. In the degree of personalized aggression, this ethno-national idea of the country that skips over saying we are the national community that the Constitution creates and goes straight to saying things like Christians need to stick together, fight the global Islamic threat, Mexicans can't sit on federal courts and be fair to people who stick up for America. That kind of appeal is is certainly has got a deep history in American politics, but it hasn't been so front and center in a president's language since I would say the late 19th, early 20th century, when you have people of a very different world like Woodrow Wilson and, and Teddy Roosevelt. So people are trying to name these changes along with the total lack of respect for ordinary norms of argumentative rationality, like consistency in the facts you assert and the relation between facts and principles. And it's understandable that they go to a category like authoritarian, but I think we should not let the category take control of our attempt to understand the phenomenon, if you see what I mean. I do. Um, now, a couple times in this conversation, I've heard you reference the ethno-nationalism of Trump. I think that's the correct phrase. Yet, during the campaign in dissent, you wrote, opponents of Trump should struggle to avoid calling his supporters racists, xenophobes, and the like by default to avoid addressing them as members of a white identity movement. Was this, do you still stand by that? Was it less apparent to you that many of his supporters are? Or is that maybe you were saying that just as a campaign tactic? It doesn't do anything to you know lash out at potential voters. The I wouldn't want I wouldn't want to back off from that, but I think that events have significantly complicated it. So at the time, I thought, as most of us thought, that it was a fair working assumption that Hillary Clinton would beat Trump, um, and so the explicit question it, uh, in that piece was. If Trump is off the national scene, what do we do with the fact that there are tens of millions of voters who, in this campaign, threw their shoulders behind someone whose politics were a, a new brand of white identity politics? How do you go forward from that point? And my general thought was, if Trump's gone, you have to hope that to some degree you can drain the poison by focusing your criticism of this politics on the instigator rather than on the supporters, because in politics, you know, people tend to become what they're addressed as being. Sure. Um, that previous analysis doesn't apply in a clean way, because people who are, who are sticking behind Trump now are sticking behind a series of specifically concrete ethno-national um, fear-mongering, xenophobic policies. And at, at some point, you are responsible for what you support. Ultimately, I think you have to hope, you have to hope that people can be um, peeled away from this and that politics is, um, is dynamic enough that just as there were people, maybe not as many as some initial reports suggested, but there were non-trivial numbers of people who voted for Obama once or twice and then voted for Trump, that people's cocktail of political motives can take a lot of different forms. Right now, I can hardly imagine a worse form than an enduring camp of American politics that is Trumpist, um, that's Trumpist even after Trump. And avoiding that 
I thought I knew how to do that after he lost. Since he didn't lose, I think we have to reshuffle our sense of how we do that. But I don't think that goal changes. I'm also wondering how much your own biography might influence your opinion. I read J.D. Vance's Hillbelly Elegy. It's about Appalachian values. I know Mm -hmm. you're from West Virginia. Every county in West Virginia is Appalachian. Is a part of this saying, I know a lot of these people. It's not useful to call them racist. Hmm. I'm just just thinking about that. My home county uh, went for Trump at a level of 77%. So I certainly did grow up with a lot of people who um, are supporting Trump. Trump's politics are are, are xenophobic and um, flirt with white nationalism, depending what you take that to mean exactly. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't go so far as to say that I want to exonerate um, the people I grew up with or to separate them from that charge or just let alone to say that they like don't know don't know what they're doing or, or don't mean it or something like that for what it's worth it's biographically impossible for me not to think of the people who supported Trump as concrete human beings that I grew up knowing. Some of them I was afraid of because I thought they were going to beat me up in high school. <laughs> um, but certainly people I know in a, in a pretty concrete way as neighbors and classmates and, you know, fellow Boy Scouts and Little League teammates and, and so on. And that must be a barrier um, to something that I hear some of my liberal friends say in private conversations, which is, I feel like I don't share a country with these people. I can imagine how a person could come to that conclusion. That's not a feeling I could ever achieve. So maybe it would help those people to have uh, won a pig by wrestling him. Like I did. I I read that about you. (laughs) This is true? Yeah, I won won a greased pig contest when I was, uh, I don't know, 10 or so. If you you hold on to the greased pig, um, then you get to take it home. It was years before I realized the really significant thing about this contest is that everyone who was coming to the elementary school fundraiser had a place to put a pig and would want one. Um, so there was no, you know, there was no, no flaw in this plan at all. Yeah. And, and sure enough, I, I took mine back and we put it in a stall. And then a year and a half later, when it was big, we ate it, uh, like anyone else would have done. So I want to ask you one more thing. Um, I don't know if our listeners know, but when you were a Yale Law student, you wrote this book called Four Common Things, Irony, Trust, and Commitment in America Today. People would turn to you. Tell us about what our state of irony is, Jed. Yes. You're a young man who yes. sees it. But now in the age of Trump, is irony more dangerous than ever or more attractive a defense mechanism, do you think? This is a very earnest time in many, many ways. Um, People are very serious about politics and they see that politics has stakes. Um, A lot of what I was saying in that book, my my 24-year-old self was saying, was that the pernicious effect of a kind of reflexive, ubiquitous, ironic posture was just assuming that politics was always kind of a joke. I don't think people tend to feel that right now. I think imagining that feels like a lost luxury. The other things that people do with irony, which I've got to say is a 
form that I've come to appreciate, I think, in, in more dimensions than I, than I did when I was a kid, is they try, they try to preserve some autonomous mental territory. So in as much as irony is one of the techniques of political self-care, um, I, you've got to make space for it. But I would also say, in line with what I said way back in that book, one of the things Trump fed on in his campaign was the sense that it was all a little bit of a joke. There was this mm -hmm. weird combination of very serious hyperbole and saying the country is in a catastrophe and I'm the only one who can save us and there are murderers and rapists in every corner and you need to have guns on every table of your house. And then this element of showmanship, the, sh the, the, the shrug, the stock lines, it's not going to happen, not going to happen. Like he was always performing as himself a, 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 a bit on the road, and it created this kind of deniability that you always heard when his supporters were called to account about the racist comments and the grossly misogynist stuff. They'd be like, "Oh, you know, that doesn't. It, it's all kind of. It's kind of an act. You, yeah. you're, you're strong to take him too seriously. Right. Like any, like so anyone there, steeped in irony, where the message is, "I get it. I'm in on the joke. This is what his supporters would essentially say when it wasn't a yeah, joke." That's right. Yeah. There was this like uh, this double move where, on the one hand, he's saying, "Look, these are incredibly urgent truths about the danger we're in that liberal elites are suppressing, and I'm going to save you from them." And then on the other hand, you call him on the specifics and it's like, what, bro, you can't take a joke? <laughs> it was like irony, political irony dying by its own hand. Jedediah Purdy, professor of law at Duke, and his uh, latest piece for the New Republic is America's New Opposition. And he writes in dissent all the time. Thank you so much, Jed. Oh, what a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. And now the spiel. In his first solo and classiest press conference since assuming the presidency, Donald Trump sparred with reporters for well over an hour. He said some things we rate as totally true. I don't think there's ever been a president elected who in this short period of time has done what we've done. Zero Pinocchios on that. But he also made some bizarre statements that were flat out false. I guess it was the biggest electoral college win since Ronald Reagan. When alerted by Pete Alexander of NBC that he got fewer electoral votes than every president since Reagan except George W. Bush, Trump's answer really said something. Well, I'm talking about Republican. Again, Trump saying, yes, he just meant Republicans. But George Herbert Walker Bush did better. He was a Republican. Oh, well, I was told that. I saw that. I guess then it's okay. But go ahead, tell us some more about how we're the fake news. Let me demonstrate how Trump got this fact, unfake fact, wrong. On November 15th, Breitbart published a story asserting that in the election, Trump won 3,084 counties out of America's 3,141 counties, meaning Hillary Clinton won only 57 counties. This claim got put in maps, got shared, got passed around. And by early December, Snopes checked it out and found it to be inaccurate. However, an accurate count of the counties, of which Hillary won close to 500, did indeed demonstrate a fact that became a talking point in the White House itself. Mike Pence asserted this fact on Meet the Press on December 4th when he said, from literally the day after the election, 
a historic election where he won 30 out of 50 states, more counties than any candidate on our side since Ronald Reagan, we went right to work. Okay, that was the claim. That is true. Trump won more counties than any Republican except Ronald Reagan. Few qualifiers and largely irrelevant, but that is a fact. And that fact, that claim laid fallow for a time, but it did make an appearance again when Pence said it again, this time on Face the Nation. Look, Donald Trump won this election fair and square. 30 out of 50 states, including Georgia. More counties than any Republican candidate uh, since Ronald Reagan. Reince Priebus said that same thing in that same way on this week on ABC on January 15th. But when Reince went to meet the press on the same day, he got the fact a little wrong. Donald Trump won 30 of 50 counties. He won about 128 out of the 159 counties in Georgia. He flipped 200 counties that Obama won and had the biggest electoral landslide on our side of the aisle since Ronald Reagan. Inaccurate. George H.W. Bush had a bigger victory. So from this game of telephone to today's press conference, where the wrong claim, which totally ignores the thrashing of Mike Dukakis and eliminates the qualifier among Republicans, gets said, there's Trump up there saying, I heard this somewhere, likely from your own man on the shows. It wasn't the most important part of the press conference, but it was of a piece with the overall effort to redefine reality regardless of fact. Trump uses the tactic of hitting one truth or more often near truth and letting that stand as shorthand for the greater story. Here's all you need to know that time misreported the existence of the MLK bust. Ergo, the news media is fake. Or Donna Brazil of CNN may have tipped off Hillary Clinton on topics before a town hall meeting that Bernie Sanders also took part in. This becomes Hillary got questions before the debate. Can you imagine if it was me that have a firing squad? If it was you before a Democratic primary town hall? Mm-hmm. Leaked information reveals lies and possible illegalities out of the Office of National Security Advisor. Now, the important part of that that you need to know is leaks. And there really were real leaks. Well, the leaks are real. You're the one that wrote about them and reported them. I mean, the leaks are real. You know what they said. You saw it. And the leaks are absolutely real. The, the news is fake because so much of the news is fake. So one thing that I felt it was very important. What does he mean? Trump actually told us. He talked about his ratings, his own ratings, the shows, said he doesn't watch CNN at the beginning of the press conference. 40 minutes later, he's giving a detailed critique of the composition of the panelists on Don Lemon's CNN show. But then he flat out said, The public isn't, you know, they read newspapers, they see television, they watch. They don't know if it's true or false because they're not involved. Then he went on to say, but I'm in the middle of these stories and I know what's true. And that's why you should believe me because I know the truth. He is telling you his strategy. Create doubt. There's no way to tell what's true or false. Undermine confidence. Foster distrust in reality. And then step in and define reality. Because that's your reality show. And that was what the show was today. I'm not one of those pundits who will tell you if it played well or if it played poorly with the public or swing voters. That's just a guess. But I will tell you this. So much of what Trump said was not true. And that is a fact. (laughs) 
That's it for today's show. Mary Wilson produces the gist where her health care plan indeed makes drugs cheaper than candy bars. Chris Berube, just producer, is Canadian, and he can clarify. Antibiotics, cheaper than candy bars. Migraine medicine, not. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts like no other. That regard is a little bit like a nuclear holocaust. Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the Panoply Network, who in all fairness watched Dr. Charles Krauthammer the other night say he was doing his job. And I agree with him. The gist. We don't speak to people from Russia. Not that we wouldn't. We just have nobody to speak to. Oomperu, depru, dupru, and thanks for listening.